Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Everywhere I go around Australia, we're um, not seeing the skill shortages addressed. People are still crying out for those skills. So the nurses, the engineers in particular, uh, there just doesn't seem to have been much of an impact uh, for in those areas. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today, I'm joined in Geelong by the Shadow Immigration Minister, Dan Tan. Welcome, Dan. Paul, pleasure to be with you. And uh, sun shining through here in Geelong and it's uh, a lovely autumn day. Good to hear. I had the crunch of autumn leaves underfoot walking back from Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, who was speaking at the National Press Club with the release of the Migration uh, Review. Uh, It's been a big few weeks. The government also announced that they're going to create a pathway to citizenship for New Zealanders here in Australia. But I wanted to start back in March uh, with a speech that you gave to the Law Council and you said that uh, Labor is delivering a big Australia without being upfront with the Australian people. It's Labor's big Australia policy uh, with no plan. Uh, could I ask, uh, please, what you thought of Thursday's release of the Migration Review? Uh, were Labor at least upfront about temporary migration and did it constitute a plan? Uh, well, I don't think it did constitute a plan. And, and one of the disappointing things um, about speech by Claire O'Neill was I thought they might have offered to to give us a, a briefing, have Martin Parkinson brief us, and also provide us with a copy of, of the 200-page review. It was only made public literally as she started speaking. So that's a, a little bit disappointing. So we've obviously got to look through it. Um, digest it. There's a there's a lot in there. Um, there are things that you know on the on the face of it that I think we can support. I think we we all hope and want for a better visa processing system. I think reducing the number of visas and streamlining the the visa system uh, would be a very good outcome, and we'd be happy to work with the government on that. Making sure our education and migration agents uh, are working so that the people that they're meant to be uh, working to get outcomes for, that that's what they're doing rather than getting financial outcomes for themselves. I think if we can do work together in that area and then making sure that we are focusing on, in particular, young and skilled migrants, uh, that's something that I've been talking about really um, for for nearly 12 months now. So they're the sorts of things that we'd like to to work with the government on and uh, my hope is even though it was very disappointing that, that we weren't briefed and weren't given a copy of the report that we'll be able to do so. 
Well, it's good uh, notes of bipartisanship there on the on the things that you liked from the review so far. C- could I ask um, what you think needs more explanation or, or more detail about where the government's going from here? Well, I, I think Claire O'Neill's speech just raised a lot more questions than it gave answers. And the the question that the big question is, and it's the one you referred to before, is everything that Labor seemed to be doing is. Um, advancing a big Australia by stealth and not really uh, with any sort of plan. And recently we've had the Reserve Bank come out and say that they're concerned with the 650,000 additional people that we're going to be bringing into Australia over the next two years, the impact that that's going to have on inflation and hence interest rates. Uh, there's already concerns being raised about what it what it means for congestion, what it means for housing and what it means for, for rental increases. And none of that was, was addressed in Claire O'Neill's speech. Those externalities of immigration, which you have to balance versus making sure we are addressing those skill shortages, there didn't seem to be any analysis of that, no talking about economic costs to what they're, what they're seeking to do. As a matter of fact, the detail was, was very scant. We don't know what skill shortages they've been trying to address in the, in the last 10 months, uh, where future skill shortages are. It seems like now that we're going to find all that out at the end of the year. And Labor are in opposition for nine years. They've come into government they don't seem to have a plan for immigration. They've commissioned this review. And now we find out that having commissioned the review, we're really not going to find out what approach, if anything, they're, they're, they're taking or what strategy they have in place till the end of the year. Meanwhile, the number of people we're bringing into the country just continues to increase. Yeah, now the point I'd make about uh, about that, the 650,000 net migration expected over two years, uh, Claire O'Neill did say at, at the National Press Club that we're expecting a, uh, a an increase in arrivals in the short term, which she thinks is temporary because it's, you know, since borders reopened after COVID. The minister made the claim that if all the things in the review were implemented, it would actually uh, reduce the size of the immigration uh, program. Uh, I know uh, you're a little sceptical of, of that claim, but we might look at one of the measures uh, that has that potential. The government says that they're going to be adding uh, more integrity by ensuring that international students are genuinely studying rather than coming over studying a junk course to get work rights. Uh, that would be a, a material improvement to the program that could result in more quality, not quantity, couldn't it? Uh, potentially, but once again, there was absolutely no detail um, all she said was these would be conversations she'd be having with the Minister for Education and then the Minister, uh, Brendan O'Connor as well, so the Skills Minister. So once again, it's hard to see how and in the, in the meantime, um, the education, international student numbers just continue to, to increase. So um, what in, in theory, um, what she seemed to be saying uh, made some sense, but in practice, once again, absolutely no detail apart from further conversations. So I, I just can't quite understand what the point of the review was. Um, I thought she would come out and say, we're accepting these recommendations and this is what we're doing. Uh, instead, she seems to have just 
raise further questions. Said she'll do further consultations with her ministerial counterparts and we'll get some sort of response at the end of the year. Meanwhile, I think we're all seeing the impacts of that net overseas migration number of 650,000 plus on housing, on rents, on congestion, and everywhere I go around Australia, we're um, not seeing the skill shortages addressed. People are still crying out for uh, for those skills. So the nurses, the engineers in particular, uh, there just doesn't seem to have been much of an impact uh, in those areas. So they're all the things that I was hoping she would have been able to clearly point to. And I just wondered whether it was a mistake not to have Andrew Giles, the immigration minister there. He seems to be across a bit more of the detail. And the fact that he was overseas is is quite, quite strange. And I think so where she was asked those specifics and she couldn't answer, she could have been able to say, but I've got Andrew Giles here as the immigration minister. He'll be able to answer them. I think that might have helped her press club address. Now, you mentioned skill shortages uh, there. The broad thrust of the review, which the government has accepted, is to have a three-tiered system uh, with sort of extremely high, highly skilled and highly paid people at the top that needs less regulation, just get them in, a sort of middle tier uh, that will be people earning above a 70000 which would be, you know, engineers, IT, those sorts of skills, and then a, a third tier which would be lower paid but in areas of skill shortage like the care economy. Is that a, is that a sensible uh, a, approach that could prioritise um, the areas of greatest need in the Australian economy? In theory, once again, um, there is the potential. And look, I I haven't had a chance to go through all the detail, but in theory, that does seem to have some appealing aspects to it. I mean, all we saw today announced was the seventy thousand increase in the Tismet, and one of the questions that I have is, I think in most of the cities that that won't have much of an impact. But once you go into rural and regional areas, it will. And, for instance, in the care economy and particularly when it comes to aged care, that could have a real impact uh, on our aged care facilities. So what would be really helpful would be if the government had some modelling um, so that we know what the impact would be, asking aged care facilities to find an increase of potentially $16,000 as a one-off for workers uh, in regional and rural areas could have a real impact on those aged care facilities because they're already financially struggling. So some some detailed modelling that shows that there's been deep analysis done of this, they understand what the impact would be, um, would be very helpful. And once again, it would be great if um, either Claire O'Neill or Andrew Giles could, um, you know, brief us and give us an understanding of, of how this is going to work because it's in all our interest to make sure that migration fills these skills shortages that we have, and especially in these in, these, in the care economy. Um, but we're we're not seeing any ability or any want to to sort of do that. And you know, our we wonder the reason why uh, they won't do that. And it seems to me, I think, because I think deep down they want this big Australia by by stealth. And therefore, they don't want the, the sort of scrutiny that they might get if they, they did provide us with all the detail. Hmm. 
Now, uh, for people that don't speak fluent migration, the TISMIT is the temporary skilled migration income threshold, which is the pay floor uh, for skilled workers. Um, you've got to earn more than that to, to qualify for the visa. Uh, and that's going to be raised from about 54000 to 70000 uh, Claire O'Neill was quite critical of the coalition for allowing that to stagnate over many years uh, and argued that that made it more of a lower skilled visa, not a higher skilled visa. Do you take any responsibility for, you know, the fact that there are 1.8 million temporary migrants with work rights in Australia and, and that a lot of those people came under under the coalition's watch? Well, we um, believe in, in temporary migration. We also believe in permanent migration. You've got to get the, the mix right. Now, a lot of that temporary migration was defined um, to fill those skill shortages. Now, when it came to the pandemic, obviously, we saw a lot of those people leave, but we saw some of them stay. And we obviously then had to make sure that we could accommodate them through the pandemic. So there's some legacy issues there um, from the pandemic. But we think a a well-run migration system has permanent migration pathways, but also temporary migration pathways. And the temporary migration should be what it is, temporary. So if you have someone here for four years, they can come, they can learn the skills, fill the shortages, and then obviously return to their country of origin. That helps them then be able to get jobs in that, that economy and be able to help address the skills in those in those countries. So we, we believe in the two pathways, but you do have to make sure that your temporary migration system If it's designed for temporary workers, then that's what it should be. And it's particularly important um, when you go through economic cycles. Obviously, due to our economic management, we were able to run a very strong economy, which meant that demand was there for those temporary skilled migrants. But the beauty of temporary skilled migrants is that once you get an economic downturn, obviously you can adjust the levels to ensure that that's not having a negative impact on Australian workers. And one of the fears that I have is that we seem to be increasing the permanent pathways, uh, which means it gets harder and harder then to adjust if you get a downturn in the economic cycle. And uh, my concern is, especially with the way the Labor government are managing the economy at the moment, is that we could see that economic downturn and they won't have that flexibility with the temporary pathway visas to be able to adjust them uh, to ensure that we don't see that negative impact on Australian workers. So we'll be looking at the detail on this to see whether they've got the balance right. On Friday, Anthony Albanese and the states discussed how they can work together to plan better for migration, uh, for infrastructure and services. What role is the coalition going to play in this debate? Are you going to be lobbying for more investment um, to improve you know, infrastructure or are you going to be raising concerns that migration can't be handled or, or managed effectively? Well, this sort of big Australia by stealth approach, we have real concerns with. And one of the things that doubles my concerns is that after Anthony Albanese met with Dan Andrews in Victoria, what they've done is they have pushed out the timelines for um, the suburban rail link. Uh, They've pushed out the timeframes for the tunnel over the Westgate Bridge. So all the important congestion busting 
uh, approaches that the um, that we were taking um, seem to be now being put on hold, and that I think is just going to lead to to more pressure in the in the city. So in the budget, one of the things we'll be looking out for is how much uh, is being postponed when it comes to these key infrastructure projects. I mean, Geelong today. Um, there was two billion that have been al- allocated for fast rail between Geelong and Melbourne. That's that's being put on the never never now. So postponing this key infrastructure spending uh, doesn't seem the way to deal with with congestion and and the number of, of migrants now coming into the country, which, as we've discussed, has hit six hundred and fifty thousand. And uh, by Claire O'Neill's speech, could. Grow even higher. It, it's the luxury of opposition, though, isn't it, to carp about this? You know, when you're in government, you know that business needs workers, the budget needs population growth, and older Australians need carers. But, but in opposition, you can try to tie migration to other social issues like the housing crisis or traffic or, or other externalities of, as you've have you called them today. Look, I, I, I think what we've tried to do and what I've tried to do is be very constructive in the in the approach that I've taken um, because we obviously do want to see skilled workers come in and address those skill shortages, especially in areas like aged care. And if Claire O'Neill had have announced something on what they'll do to address the policy position they have for aged care nurses and the requirements that each aged care facility has for them, I would have welcomed that. But once again, and she was specifically asked this question, all she said was, I wish Andrew Giles was here to answer that. And as we know, Andrew Giles is is overseas. So I I think what we've got to do is, in opposition, be very sensible. I've, I've spoken at the press club. I did so last year to outline our policy approach and it's a very clear policy approach. Um, and I think what we've got to do is be helpful and constructive when it comes to this Labor government in, in pointing out the types of things that they need to be looking at and working through. For instance, they want to move away from temporary migration to permanent migration, but temporary migration is demand-driven. So when it comes to international students, it's demand-driven. Now, they're talking about putting some requirements in place, but we're not clear on what that will be. So if it doesn't reduce demand, then all that's going to do is lead to a higher number of, of permanent residents here. So it's those sorts of things that we just want to get some clarity from the government on. And as I've said, um, we would have really appreciated a briefing from the government so that we could ask some of these questions and try and be helpful in trying to help them. One of the other things I'd point to is Claire O'Neill was asked whether there would be money in the budget to fix the IT issues. And as we know, you've got to keep investing in the IT issues because that in particular helps with the integrity of the system. And she said, no, there wouldn't be. Uh, And as you know, they cut funding from the IT systems in their October budget. So one of the things I'm very keen to do is work with Claire O'Neill and Andrew Giles to help them get more money for the ICT system um, for the Department of Immigration. Because if they don't do that, um, then what's going to happen is that that integrity in the system will, will continue to be jeopardised, and that that's not in anyone's interest. So hopefully they'll have more luck at the Expenditure Review Committee of Cabinet next year because it seems by her own admission in this budget um, she didn't have any. 
A big theme of a lot of the changes, uh, including last week's announcement uh, that New Zealanders will be eligible for citizenship in Australia after they've lived here for four years, a lot of it is about providing permanency to people who are already living in and contributing uh, to their communities. That's fair enough, isn't it? That for those who are living, working and contributing, a- a- absolutely. And, um, you know, that's something that we've said we support and, and do support. The, the problem is, and once again with New Zealand, uh, while that aspect of it is really positive, and I've got, you know, wonderful people in the dairy industry, in the timber industry, uh, working in um, some of our agricultural value-add facilities in my electorate who, who do an outstanding job, and I think streamlining their pathway to citizenship is very positive. But one of the things and one of the reasons why we had the system in place we did with New Zealand is that our uh, welfare system is a lot more generous than the New Zealand welfare system. So what you do have to watch for is that all of a sudden that this change doesn't lead to the type of outcomes that we're not really looking for, and that's New Zealanders coming over here to access our welfare system. And we've just asked very simple questions about has there been modelling done on the cost of, of, of this change and what is the potential impact that it might have on, on our welfare system? Because, uh, I mean, I think these are all the things that Australians need to need to be aware about. And once again, there, there's none of the detail around those things that the, the government is providing. And the Home Affairs Minister uh, was also challenged uh, in the questioning about the Pacific Labor Scheme. Do you have any concerns about that in relation uh, to what the review found? Uh, yes, I, I do. And um, one of the concerning things was the fact that she wouldn't even address this issue. In the report, it clearly shows that Pacific Islands have real concerns with Labor's Pacific Labor Scheme, that it will take young, skilled people from the Pacific uh, to Australia and that they won't return. Now, one of the benefits of a temporary scheme is that they can come over, get the skills that they need and then return, uh, whether it be to the Solomons or or Vanuatu or, or Samoa, and the skills that they've learned they can then build up their own economies with. So the fact that this concern has been raised, and when Claire O'Neill was asked about it twice, she said, well, you'll need to address that through Penny Wong and Pat Conroy. Now, I would have thought if she'd had the report for two months, and given how important it is that we get this right, because our Pacific strategy has to make sure we're building up the Pacific, not building it down. Uh, I thought she could have come with up with a much better answer and I hope that Penny Wong and, and Pat Conroy will be able to respond because Claire O'Neill's um, lack of ability to do so I thought was incredibly telling. Well, moving from uh, the New Zealanders working in agriculture and timber, uh, I wanted to ask a question with uh, your former trade minister hat on about the EU trade negotiations. Uh, Do you think we'll be drinking Australian Prosecco and eating Australian feta in a year's time or will the EU not agree to a deal if we insist on uh, keeping those names? Well, it's a, a really good question and once again, uh, this will come down to the ability of the government to be able to negotiate. And my hope is that they will be able to negotiate so we we keep those geographical indicators because I think it's important that we do. But also we've got to make sure that we get meaningful access, especially for our agricultural products. 
uh, one of the things we were able to do with the United Kingdom FTA, um, which I negotiated with Liz Truss and Anne-Marie Trevelyan, uh, was to get the best access we've seen for our agricultural exports outside the agreement that we have with New Zealand. Now, my hope is that we'll be able to see outcomes, not at that level, but of meaningful at a meaningful level with the EU. So that's that's the challenge. Uh, and in the meantime, we obviously have to protect those geographical indicators, which are very important to our nation. So my hope is we will be drinking Prosecco uh, in a year's time and we will be able, Australian Prosecco in a year's time, and we will be able to also say that we got meaningful access into the EU market. So uh, we'll wait and see what the outcome is. I, I wish Don Farrell all the best in his negotiations. Uh, the EU aren't easy to negotiate with. I think I had three rounds of the negotiations and we were able to make substantial progress. But one of the things I was making very clear uh, to, to my then counterpart who Don's negotiating with is we need that meaningful access for, for agriculture, for our beef, for our lamb, for our grains, uh, for our dairy, that it's incredibly important. And uh, so I wish him well in, in achieving those outcomes. Not easy to negotiate with, but that was that was that the the sticking point when when you were in charge of it that they they that was a red line for the EU they just wouldn't give up on the the naming rights. Well, I've always um, thought that we need to do um, these negotiations in a bipartisan way, and and never did um, basically talk about what the sticking points were when I was negotiating. Um, the UK Free Trade Agreement and the India Free Trade Agreement are both, I think, very, very good agreements um, and ones which I've been pleased to see the Labor government have been um, outwardly promoting in a very positive way. So I don't want to talk about what the sticking points were in the uh, in the negotiations because that might give the EU a little bit of an advantage over, over us. So I'll, uh, I'll refrain from, from doing that other than to, to wish Don well in his negotiations. Uh, now, you're a Victorian Liberal. Uh, the dust has settled a bit since the Aston by-election earlier in April, uh, but we're still interested in people's uh, views about what the Liberal Party should be doing to attract more support. Um, what do you think happened at the by-election and, and what do you need to do now? Well, I, I think um, the by-election... Um, took place when the the government was still enjoying somewhat of a, a honeymoon. I, I think having a, a by election ten months after a general election, the people were very much still of the view that they wanted to to give the government a go, which is um, which is fair enough. But I, I think it also pointed to the fact that we need to be doing the policy work that we need to 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 really demonstrate to the Australian people that. Okay, we had our nine years in government. We had to deal with a pandemic at the end of it, which was obviously very challenging, but we got the the best economic outcomes and the best health outcomes more so than any other country in the world. But now we've got our sights set on, okay, what are the challenges that this nation is facing for the next decade? And I think um, that's one of the things that we need to do as part of our uh, policy approach and we've started work on on the type of policies that I think Australia 
and Australians are looking for for the next 10 years and we need to continue doing that that work so that we do have a clear alternative to offer and I, I think that's probably the the second point which came out of Aston. What what sort of policy areas are you going to be uh, bolstering the offering? Is it is it housing? Uh, I, that's the one that a lot of MPs mentioned when I rang after Aston. Uh, is it energy? Because uh, I know uh, Peter Dutton and the Sir John Downer oration mentioned uh, nuclear power. Like what 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 are we? Where are the areas? that we're expecting to see big policies coming soon? Obviously, housing is, a, is an incredibly important one and we're, we're seeing um, the impact, especially on young Australians, of that dream of owning your own, your own home is something that they continue to raise. Now, what I think we need to be doing is offering a solution so that they don't lose that dream and enter into the housing market. We've got to enable them to do it. it. It would seem that the Labor Party approach is to just say it's all too hard and what you should be doing is looking to rent. Now, I don't think that's the approach that we should be taking. So I think we should say, well, Labor's approach seems to be to young people, well, just rent. Uh, what we need to be saying is our approach is, no, we want to get you into a home and we need to do the policy work on that. I think we need to do the policy work um, in immigration, and I've very much uh, started that and will continue to drive it. I've spoken at the press club on what I think the approach we need to take when it comes to, to immigration, and I'll continue to deliver speeches and set that policy out going forward because it's an absolute key as well of getting the, getting the balance right. Um, then I think we've got to make sure that we've got the focus on the economy and making sure that we've got policies which will uh, lift productivity and make sure that we've got policies in place which will mean we'll continue to get job growth in our nation, we'll continue to offer very good job opportunities as for, for all Australians. This is another area um, that we're, we're seeing declining um, as inflation continues to take root where we're seeing people's living standards decline. And so we need to be looking at how we can address that. So so that's just three of, I think, five or six areas that we can be looking at. Mm-hmm. Last one. Um, since Aston, uh, the Liberals have settled their position on the Indigenous voice in the Constitution. Karen Andrews uh, quit the front bench uh, and said that the Liberals should be talking more about the cost of living. Uh, do, do you think that it's uh, the the party settled the position on the voice because they want to get stuck into Labor and be banging on about that issue all, all year, or is it because you wanted to get it out of the way and move on to other issues like cost of living? Uh, no, I, I think we we settled the, the position on the voice uh, because we'd obviously tried to work with the government. We tried to see whether it was possible to reach a bipartisan position and it just became very clear that we weren't going to be able uh, to do that. For instance, I would have really thought it would be a positive thing if we all could have agreed and one of the questions that went in the referendum was, um, do you think that Indigenous Australians and Torres Strait Islanders should be recognised in the Constitution? Now, I think that would have got overwhelming support and we would have been able to get support from, from both sides of politics to that. Then you could have had a second question, um, do you think that we should have a voice enshrined in our Constitution? So doing it in two parts 
would have mean I think you would have got overwhelmed for that first question, and we could have had the debate around the second. For instance, you know, my my view is that uh, when it comes just to that uh, to a point of, of principle, and it's a point of principle that I've always held very strongly around equality, um, equality before the law. That is that's something that you know the Enlightenment project was all about. It's something. Uh, the Judeo-Christian approach has all been about, and you go back to Aristotle, and when he was first thinking about constitutions, he said that the the best constitution is one where all citizens are equal. Um, so that is a, a fundamental principle. With Martin Luther King, with his famous quote around, you know, we want people judged by their character, not the colour of their skin, I think is is really important. And so it's there's for many people that point of principle when it comes to the voice. Yet when it comes to recognition in the constitution, that is something that we were all all I think prepared to to agree on, and we could have got a very good outcome on. So I think that was why we took the decision that we did. Karen Andrews obviously very much supports our position when it comes to the voice, but she rightly says. And I think it's a, a very good point. What we have to do is not let the voice distract. Uh, that debate is obviously important, but not let it distract from those issues which are impacting on everyday Australians. And that is cost of living. That is inflation. That is interest rates. We're all feeling it. Um, but in particular, I can tell you, you know, as I travel around my communities, that's what people are raising with me. So we've got to make sure as MPs, as representatives of our community, we're reflecting the needs of our people and that's why we do have to be focused on cost of living. <laughs> I think that might be all we have time for. I'm not sure whether Wannan is uh, more famous for its Prosecco or its Feta, but I hope you have a, a glass or, or bite of, uh, of something and, and get to relax. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dan Tan. Been a pleasure, Paul, and uh, it's more work for me tonight. So the uh, prosecco and feta will have to have to wait a little bit. But uh, it's been great to join you. Cheers, Dan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'll be back with another episode of Australian Politics next week. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.